And mm-hmm. so decolonizing mental health is really being able to unpack, you know, what is not working and then replace it with different frameworks that does apply to people who don't look or, you know, experience life the same way as the people who made these theories. Welcome to the Unconditionally Worthy Podcast. In this podcast, I will guide you on your journey to connect with the true source of your self-worth. Each week, we'll discuss barriers to unconditional self-worth, the connection between self-worth and relationships, self-worth practices you can apply to your life, and how to use self-worth as a foundation for living courageously. I'm your host, Dr. Adia Gooden, a licensed clinical psychologist, dance enthusiast, and a dark chocolate lover who believes deeply that you are worthy unconditionally. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Unconditionally Worthy podcast. If you are watching on YouTube, you are going to see in just a second that the outfit I am wearing now is not the outfit I will be wearing during the episode. And that's because I finished the episode and the kind of day I was having on the day we recorded the episode meant that I totally forgot that I need to uh, record an intro. So just know that you're not seeing things. <laughs> My outfit actually is different. It was a busy day. I had a talk, I had a call, I had a meeting. I think I had one other thing. It was a very busy day. And so by the time I recorded the podcast, it's the end of the day. And I think my brain is done. So I am back recording this intro. I guess I say that to say we all have days and we just got to give ourselves grace and compassion and come back to it when we can. So today's episode is with Dr. Han Ren. You may have seen her on the internet street. She has a massive following on Instagram and TikTok. And she really talks about decolonizing mental health and takes such a fun and approachable approach to doing that. And so we have a really thoughtful and insightful conversation about what that means, what it means to decolonize mental health, what it looks like to take care of yourself as a BIPOC person navigating this world. And it's a really insightful conversation. So tune in. And as always, let us know what you think. I am really excited and honored to welcome Dr. Han Ren, who uses the pronouns she and they, um, to the podcast. Dr. Han is a licensed clinical psychologist and school psychologist consultant, speaker, and educator. She is deeply rooted in liberation and anti-oppressive work, practicing from a justice-oriented, interpersonal, culturally humble, and systems-informed framework. Through their widely viewed content on social media, which is how I encountered Dr. Han, they strive to make mental health accessible and applicable to our daily lives. Dr. Wren addresses the pursuit of collective healing through her work centered in historically overlooked communities, especially Asian Americans and children of immigrants. She has been featured on the TEDx stage, the Headspace app, BuzzFeed, and the Huffington Post. When she's not in the therapy chair, you can find her laughing with family and friends, caffeinating with black coffee, dancing offbeat to live music, and pelotoning. So I am so excited to have you here. You have an incredible way of making mental health and therapy relatable and sort of calling out the things that I think a lot of us are thinking and feeling 
but most people don't want to say. And so I just appreciate your sort of approach to being authentic and having real conversations. And I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and joy. Awesome. Well, I would love to start our conversation by diving in the deep end (laughs) and Mm -hmm. asking you to share a bit about your own self-worth journey. Yeah, gosh, I think I'm still on it. Um, It's in no ways complete, but I think I've been making good progress, um, especially compared to earlier in my life. I was... um, I was an immigrant, a child immigrant to the U.S. So I came to the U.S. when I was five. And so much of my childhood was about fitting in and not um, being singled out. And a lot of the uprearing that I had was around performance and achievement and not really about who I was as a person. So a lot of my self-worth, you know, for I would say the good first half plus of my life was around what I did and who I was to other people. And it wasn't until after I like checked off a bunch of, um, you know, milestones off my list that I started being more thoughtful about, well, now what, you know, if I can do all these things and be all these things to other people and still feel hollow to myself, then there might be something else that uh, needs some examining. So I think just even in the past um, five years or so, when I've had the space and time to be more reflective and, you know, think about my relationship to work and where I want it to fit into my life and my relationship to other people in my life, I've been able to find a little bit more anchoring within me. Um, mm. I have an affirmation that I like to repeat to myself, you know, in, in these times, like, I belong to myself and we belong to each other. Mm. And yeah, it's still, it's still ongoing, but I'm, I'm working on it. Mm. I love that. And I think I love the affirmation. I belong to myself and we belong to each other. And I also like your use of the term anchoring, right? Like this sort of anchoring within yourself. And I think, you know, I certainly resonate with your experience of like, okay, like what are the boxes that I have to check to get approval for other people to be happy with me? And, you know, I'm not an immigrant. My dad's an immigrant. So I'm sure that influence, I know that influence my sense of self and worthiness. And I think there's lots of different life experiences who've had a similar, you know, challenge with like finding their worth within themselves and not sort of looking to all the achievements. And similar to you, I got to the point where I was like, okay, so this whole academic for me, it's like academic, this isn't working. Like, yeah, got the PhD, got the thing. Yeah. Like that didn't work. So what else? And so it sort of forces you to turn inward. And you know, part of what I think about when I think about your work and how you show up online is the courage that it takes mm-hmm. to go against the grain and to challenge, right, a system, a framework around mental health that is, you know, grounded in whiteness, grounded in white supremacy, and to sort of call it out, especially when we have been trained and socialized that like, you don't do this because that's, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's all these sort of like rules, right? And like the ethics and the things, you know what I mean? And so I'd love for you to talk about, I guess I have two questions, but I always, I'm like, let's just ask one question at a time. (laughs) 
I'd love for you to talk maybe first about the courage and like how you found, like where you found the courage, how you cultivated that to like come out and, you know, like call out, right? Like this system that doesn't fit for you or doesn't fit for your clients and what that's felt like, what that's been like for you. You know, I think in terms of social media, when I first started making TikToks, it was just a boredom buster. It was October of 2020. I was like, you know, done all the paint by numbers and then cross stitches. I'm like, I need something else to do that can really channel my creativity. And everything was still so locked down at that point that it felt just like I was alone in my backyard or in my office. And it didn't feel real. Like I'm never going to meet people like who see my work or, you know, there was a lot of like screaming into the void about that. Mm. Um, And that actually gave me a lot of courage because I didn't have to think too hard or too deeply. I could be more off the cuff and authentic. And Mm -hmm. also, you know, in that time, it was such a reckoning on a societal level when it came to racial injustice and mental health. And so much of what I was seeing out there was very like, you know, Eurocentric, traditional kind of generic about breathing exercises for your anxiety and Mm. really not calling out the systemic factors that influence our mental health or the, you know, identity factors that um, can actually be very much sources of strength for folks. And because my um, practice had, you know, from the day I started, it had really centered BIPOC mental health and children of immigrants and Asian Americans, especially, um, I felt like I was in a good position to be able to speak on that from both professional and lived experience. And the response was um, very positive. And that made me realize just how badly like the world needed to hear this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense that sort of initially sort of not really thinking about other people seeing it or what other people would think about it was just like, okay, great. Like, this is fun. This is creative. This feels honest. Um, And starting there, how that would help with courage. I think that makes a lot of sense. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about sort of what it means to decolonize mental health? Because I know that that's kind of one of the things that you do, that you talk about, that you train on. So can you share, like, what does that mean? Like, what what needs decolonizing and what does it mean to actually do that? Yeah, it's, it's getting down to the roots, you know, of what is the interventions, treatment modalities, the, you know, um, conceptualization and like theoretical frameworks for mm-hmm. why people have mental illness or just struggle with mental health and what are the solutions to address it. And if we look at what we have that's documented, it's predominantly written and created by white men. And so there's very much an individualistic, um, Eurocentric framework for what causes mental illness and how do we treat it. And this doesn't apply for a lot of people of the global majority. We're finding that it misses the mark on capturing our experience. And also, you know, if we can't identify the problem, then we don't have good solutions for that either. We can't tailor the solutions for it. Mm -hmm. And so decolonizing mental health is really being able to unpack you know, what is not working and then replace it with different frameworks that does apply to people who don't look or, you know, experience life the same way as the people who made these theories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that because 
it allows for thoughtful and intentional questioning of what is, right? Versus saying, well, this is the way, this is the right way, this is the true way, this is the best way, but really sort of challenging that. I have I have a good friend who's also a clinical psychologist and does a lot of DEI work. And part of what we talk about is like different ways of knowing things, right? So even, you know, like the research framework and the framework of evidence-based or research-based, it's like, well, what gets studied and who is studying it and who created the manual? And that's not to say that there can't be useful parts of that, but acting as though that is the only way to know that something is effective or that something is helpful you know what I mean? It really limits us and cuts us off from the wealth of wisdom that comes from communities, right? That comes from our lived experience. Um, and I know sort of of late, like I was, um, I sort of recently co-authored a book on Black women's mental health mm-hmm. and I basically have left academia. So I was sort of leaving academia as I was writing the book and I was finding myself feeling very annoyed with like, okay, having to be like black women experience ABC and then ABC and being like, now let's look for articles that prove that black women experience. And I'm like, they just do. I know they do. They do. I don't want to have to cite three articles, you know? Totally. Yeah. Now there's a lot of kind of gatekeeping involved in the research process and academia and, you know, all of that, which, you know, is by design to keep certain voices from being amplified. And I think, you know, in recent years, there's been more of a um, emphasis on lived experience, especially for, you know, I like issues of identity or neurodivergence. And um, I think we've been able to add to what we know with so much more nuance and richness because of that. So I think that there's a tendency when we're thinking about decolonizing, dismantling, engaging in social justice work, I think that there's a tendency to like throw everything away or use shame or like just like paint everything as like, this is all bad and it's all awful. And that is how we sort of engage in our modern discourse, I would say, or like public discourse is it's like, there's a lack of nuance. It is all good and all bad. And where I'm going with this is that your TED talk discussed like using guilt and not shame, right? As sort of like a transformational emotion or experience that actually helps us to make changes. And, you know, we see even in these days, right? Like people will protest. And I'm not saying these people saying shame, shame, shame is wrong. Cause like, you know, many times I'm watching, I'm like, yeah, (laughs) but you know, like that is a sort of like a common thing that you think, okay, we'll, we'll shame people out of it. Or maybe you'll shame yourself. And I'd love for you because I think people may be listening and thinking like, oh, there are things that I want to dismantle or decolonize, but not knowing how do you do that in a constructive way that doesn't just necessarily involve burning it all down. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the distinction between guilt and shame and how guilt can actually be a helpful tool in these types of processes. Yeah. So I I think, you know, the way that we think about feelings 
historically, like when I was in grad school, it's like you have positive affect and negative emotions. And there was just this like polarized labeling. And that's just not how the experience of emotions are felt. There's so much more nuance to it and, and everything has a function. So if we can approach it with just that curiosity, then maybe we don't need to discard anything and we can really learn from some of it. And, you know, the neurobiological experience of shame is that it is a social, moral emotion that we need in order to survive in communities. It's something that comes online when we're about a year and a half old and we're learning from our environment what is acceptable for our behaviors and what isn't. And when shame is able to be repaired through an explanation, through a uh, relational repair, then we can move to a place of guilt. Oh, I did something bad. You know, shame being I am bad. I'm a, I'm a horrible person. And guilt is I should not have done that. That was not a cool move. And then we can separate the act from ourselves and hold that with the curiosity of you know, no negative emotions truly exist. They're all here to teach us something. And that allows us to just grow curious about what it is that our feelings are trying to tell us and how we can lean into that and, you know, shape our actions and how to move forward. The journey to embracing your unconditional self-worth can feel overwhelming, and you may be wondering where to even begin. Well, I created the perfect free guide to get you started on this journey. In my free ebook on four practices to help you connect with your unconditional self-worth, I share about my own self-worth journey and struggles with believing that I was worthy or good enough. And I also break down four practices that will help you to begin to embrace your unconditional self-worth. This is the perfect starting place for you on your self-worth journey. And it's free. Grab your copy now by going to www.dradiagoodin.com forward slash free dash ebook. I love that distinction, right? Because when we're in guilt, it's like, then it's easier to do something, right? Like often when we're in shame, as you're saying, it's like, I'm bad. And if I, if I connected this to my work around helping people to know that they're unconditionally worthy, it's like when you feel bad, you often feel like you're bad, you're in shame, you feel like you're wrong, you're unworthy. And often when we're in that space, all we want to do is hide right? It's actually a hard space to clean up messes from, to make amends from, to fix, to have proactive action. Usually we want to hide. We don't want anybody to see us. We want like, ah, you know, just like hide, right? Leave the group. Versus if we can hold on to our sense of worthiness, even while we acknowledge Hey, that was a misstep. That I, that was harmful to someone. That hurt someone. That wasn't the best move. Then it's actually easier to say, "Hey, I need to apologize," right? And and to not apologize with the "I'm the worst human ever," and I oh, you know, which usually then is intended to sort of evoke a "No, it's not that bad." No, you're okay, yeah. right? Then it's about yeah. you, right? Versus you can sort of soothe yourself, ground yourself apologize and make it about the person who was harmed 
instead of making it about you and your need for affirmation, reassurance, whatever it is, because that is often kind of what happens is either people don't, people get angry and they're like, you shouldn't make me feel this way. Or they don't apologize, they hide and don't apologize, or they apologize in a way that centers themselves instead of the person or the people who were harmed and the repair that needs to happen. Yeah, totally. I mean, they're both uncomfortable sensations, right? Shame and guilt. And they're very similar. Our body codes them very similarly. But I think of guilt as more activating. It's, you know, shame is more like an implosion that like hide, like, oh my gosh, I you know, don't deserve to exist kind of feeling. Whereas guilt's like, Ooh, how do I make it better? How do I clean this up? And that activation is energy. It's, it's motivation to like, okay, I spilled it up, spilled it. So I need to clean it up or I need to actually make repair or like make things right somehow. Um, and it gives us just a little bit of space so we can do the repair behaviorally. Yeah. I, I think that's so helpful. And I think, you know, I think if we're thinking about like how people respond to themselves, right? It's like, okay, so if you mess something up, you don't need to beat yourself up and shame yourself. You need to acknowledge what happened and, you know, get into that, like, what did I do wrong? What can I do differently? What can I do to fix it versus how am I wrong? How am I bad, etc. And then I think also if you're in a system or in, you know, something you want to make shifts. It's also thinking about, okay, how do I communicate what people did wrong? Because if, if we are, it's not our responsibility as, you know, BIPOC folks or, you know, people who have been, you know, harmed to protect the feelings of the person who has harmed us. And if we can communicate in a way that's like, here's the thing that you can do differently, or here's the problem then I think it makes it more likely that change will come about and that action will be taken versus a sort of, you know, standoff where, you know, we're saying you're bad and wrong and you're saying, no, I'm not. (laughs) And then we're just like, you know, looking at each other or not looking at each other and feeling stuck. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, being able to acknowledge Guilt is an important step towards accountability, where we can actually be held accountable to the harm that we have done and move towards behavior change and repair. So often when people get called out or called in, especially if they're people in positions of power, they double down on what they did. And they're like, I didn't do anything wrong. And then like, if they have power, they're going to have supporters who would be like, yeah, that's right. They didn't do anything wrong. So then there's no accountability. There's no recognition or acknowledgement of harm done. And then that leads to another backlash. And then they're like, oh my gosh, cancel culture. You know, it becomes a whole thing. Whereas if you can just, you know, approach it from non-defensiveness and acknowledge, okay, I hear you. This may not have been my intention, but this was the impact. And I can acknowledge that impact because that is your reality. And then what can I learn? And how do I move forward in, you know, a personally responsible, accountable way so this doesn't happen again in the future? Hmm. This conversation makes me think about why it's important to both have people, organizations, communities that are 
working to dismantle and change and challenge systems and structures that are harmful and why it's important for BIPOC folks, you know, trans folks, LGBTQ, right? Like people who are marginalized and harmed by some of these systems to claim our worthiness and take care of ourselves in the best way we can now because we can't wait. (laughs) And I'm sort of thinking about that in the context of, you know, I know that you, I think, I believe that I have this right, that you live in Texas. Mm -hmm. And I know that you, you know, you are, you know, a person of color, you serve BIPOC folks. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about how you navigate this for yourself in, and I sort of highlight Texas just as a space and a place that has been very um, out front, like open around, like it's treatment of immigrants. It's, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? It's treatment of trans folks. It's treatment of people of color. And so I guess I'm curious about like for you, if you're willing to share like how you navigate that as a person and then also how you, support clients who are navigating this as well in that, in that place. Yeah. I mean, this is something that is very much an ongoing process for me. I am very in process with it because on the one hand that we have a lot of community here, I've got, you know, school-aged kids with friends and families that we can count on. Um, and we have a home, we have, we're, you know, I have a, a group practice, like we're established here. Um, on the other hand, you know, this, um, at the date of this recording, it's right after a string of mass shootings in Texas and just the legislation around gun ownership and concealed carry and, and all of these things make it really, really scary. And I'm just talking about gun control, not about reproductive rights or, you know, anti-trans laws and just all the different ways that makes it really hard to exist as a marginalized person in this state. Um, and so sometimes I think about, gosh, I need to get out of here. It's like insanity to just keep living here. But then I also think, well, then it's going to be this Southern flight, right? Like everyone who are the change makers who are progressive and committed to um, having this state go a different direction are going to leave. And then what? Um, so it's, it's a really hard dialectic to hold. And, um, you know, I, that's what I name with my clients too, because I, have these conversations with them all the time about some who are like in the process of leaving Texas. I'm like, you do you, you, you get to safety if that's what you need to do. And some people who are like, I can never leave Texas because it's my home. Like I get that too. There's roots and um, it's really, really challenging. And I don't have a great answer for it other than like, I just need to zoom out sometimes and then zoom back into like the minutia of what is in my control and where my pockets of joy can come from. And then other times when I have more you know, bandwidth, I can plug into more of the systemic things that are happening around me. But I will say that, you know, overall, there are communities of very like invested, um, passionate progressive people here. Um, and they do provide that social support. And I do feel like Austin is a bit of a bubble. I wouldn't live anywhere else in Texas, (laughs) 
<laughs> so it's it's just that zoom in, zoom out, kind of riding the wave. Thank you for being willing to share that because I'm sure that there are a lot of people sort of wrestling with this very real yeah. tension of like, this is my home. This is where I've set up my life and I don't just want to leave that. And then also the sense of responsibility to the state, the community, right? And then also knowing that like, it is important to find your people. It is important to find the communities with like-minded folk and, you know, feel like you can be supported and connected. And, and I also think, yeah, zooming in and zooming out and like knowing when to sort of connect and engage politically and when to take a little bit of a break from the news, right? Like, well, you know, I often talk about like, where are you getting your news from? And like, mm-hmm. because we do have to, you know, it's like, this is a marathon and we do have to go at a pace that is sustainable because if we burn ourselves out, that is really no good for anyone. And sort of how it's like, how do you live in this, in this reality feels like sort of the question that you're sort of like living through. Yeah. You know, totally. you know, there's not a perfect answer, but you live through it every day. You do what you can every day. And that's my favorite thing about just liberatory work in general is the emphasis on play, connection, pleasure, and rest. That this is not an uh, option. It's a non-negotiable that you have those elements because that's what nourishes your body and soul to wake up and do it again tomorrow. Oh, I love that. I love that you're bringing in play, connection, pleasure, and rest. Because I do think they often feel like luxuries and like options. And there is a sense of like, put your head down, keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And what we know is that for marginalized communities, you know, it may result in, you know, a mental health crisis. It may result in a physical health crisis. It may result in burnout. Like there's so many things that happen to us when we don't take the time for rest and play and pleasure and all of those things. And I also think that those things, play, rest, pleasure, connection, are also things that help to affirm our worthiness, right? Mm -hmm. That when we make room for fun and pleasure and enjoying ourselves and not being productive and doing something for some sort of outcome that we're sort of affirming our being and affirming that who we are in this moment right now is worthy. And that that is also a form of resistance and a form of pushing back on the narratives that we have to be perfect. We have to always be working. We have to write like all of these narratives around sort of like you know, this is how you, this is what you have to do. It's like respectability politics, at least in the mm-hmm. you know, black communities. And there's, you know, there's all, you know, different names for different communities, right? But there's this idea that if we do it perfect, if we're always working, always on time, always da, 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 if we're serious, then, you know, then they'll treat us well. <laughs> and mm-hmm. what we know is that's not true, right? Like that, that actually isn't how it works. And I also think if we're tapping into legacy, We know that our ancestors do have legacies of celebration, of joy, of connection and community and play and fun, whether that's like or dancing in a sweaty saloon or whatever celebration. And so I think that's also about kind of like what we were, what you were saying earlier about like 
decolonizing mental health, what it looks like to take care of ourselves, to take care of our mental health. And it's like going back to the legacies of our ancestors and how they celebrated and how they connected and how they did all of these things in the midst of incredible pain, trauma, challenge, that there was still these moments of joy and lightness and pleasure. And that it's important for us to continue that legacy. Totally. Yeah. Therapy does not have a monopoly on healing. There's so much more that's happening in life that doesn't exist in a manual. Mm-hmm. And if we feel the inherent um, you know, feeling of deserving it without having to earn it. And we can actually utilize it as a way to nourish ourselves and our community, then we're stronger for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And it does feel freeing, right? It does mm-hmm. feel like, oh, and I could enjoy my life even in the journey, right? Like even totally. while all this stuff is happening. And I think there's also, if we go back to <laughs> the guilt versus shame, there's often there can be guilt, right? Around yeah. enjoying life, in experiencing pleasure while you know that other people are suffering. And I think if we yeah. can think about enjoyment, joy, play, fun, and pleasure as a tool of liberation and as a tool of resistance yes. that helps us to see that it's it's not selfish and it's not counter mm-hmm. to our efforts and to what we want to change and dismantle. It actually not only sort of fuels us, as you were saying, like gives us the energy to continue It also affirms our worth. It also gives other people permission, right, to do those things. And so it isn't isn't selfish and it isn't counter. It's actually essential. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it goes back to relinquishing control. When we try so hard to control outcomes and the future, we discover there's actually very little that's within our control. And so not coming from a place of needing that allows us to explore what we can actually have agency over, you know, around in our environment and how we feel and how we can tap into these things that feel good as part of our inherent worthiness. Mm, I love that. Releasing the need to control, right? Like that's certainly something I am, <laughs> I am in process on. And it also feels like sort of another thing that's decolonizing because I think in the sort of white Western world, there is a sense of like control. These outcomes leads to, the, you know, this input leads to this output, right? Like we can research it. We can like narrow it down, right? Like there's just, that is sort of how you know, there's a tendency to have tunnel vision around all the contextual yeah. factors that may lead to various outcomes. And so releasing yeah. control. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right. It, releasing control sort of dismantles that and also frees us up. And I will say as somebody who, you know, likes control is scary. So I would love to know, what do you, how do you manage that? How do you um, lean into releasing control? How do you help others lean into that um, as a practice? Yeah. I mean, I really think of it as control versus agency, you know, Control means you have to know every single possible permutation of outcomes so you can pick the right one, whereas agency is 
this belief in like, I'll figure it out. It's Mm. possibility. It's potential. It's part of trusting yourself and learning to trust yourself and the people that you surround yourself with. Where can you find agency given your specific set of circumstances? And there are certainly places where we have more or less agency, but we always have some agency, even if the consequences are painful. There's some consequences that are going to be less painful than others. And so we always have that choice and, you know, really being intentional about seeing the places where we have that agency, I think is super liberating. Then we have the energy to actually follow through on what the agency inspires. Yeah. I love that distinction between agency and control. And I also think when we are focused on our agency, that moves us out of feeling like victims, feeling like we are the victim of this situation. We are the victim of this system. We are the victim of this and we can't do anything about it. And so we may not be able to eliminate racism (laughs) tomorrow, right? And we do still have agency and choice, right? We do still get to live out our values. We do still get to make choices around how we show up. And I agree that that's That's where we tap into our power. That is where we feel free. And, you know, I also think when we're trying to control all the outcomes or have that certainty, we tend to predict the worst possible outcome versus like the best possible outcome. So we catastrophize and we say, oh, it's going to be awful. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be, you know, and we get very limited in terms of what feels possible. And then we feel limited in our choices and our agency. And so when we can say, hey, I don't know, like you're saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, you know, there's a lot of potential outcomes and here's how I want to show up. I talk, you know, about values, like here are the values that I want to use to guide my decisions and my choices. And that's what I can do. And I can't control the outcome that lowers the pressure. Um, and it allows people to live their life in a way that feels aligned, even if the external circumstances aren't necessarily exactly what you might want them to be. Exactly. And I think it's a good reminder for all of us that we can always change our mind. We can always pivot. Uh, Our flexibility is our strength. And the need to plan every single thing out before you even start is maybe more about your self-confidence and, you know, something about you rather than the task itself. When you have the trust in yourself and the belief that you'll be able to figure out no matter what happens, it might not be easy, but you have that agency and you have that ability, then it allows you to just get started and walk that first step and uh, trust in yourself along the way. Yeah. I love that. I really do love that. I would love for you to share with people how they can follow you, connect with you online, kind of learn more about you and the work you do, the content you put out into the world. Yeah, you can find me on my website, drhanren.com or on Instagram and TikTok, also just Dr. Hanren. And uh, my group practice is pivotpsychologyatx.com, um, where I have a team of wonderful clinicians. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being willing to come on the podcast, having such a thoughtful and dynamic conversation with me. I so appreciate it. I know our listeners will appreciate it. And, you know, thank you. And I wish you well. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. (laughs) Thanks for joining me this week on the Unconditionally Worthy podcast. 
make sure to visit my website, dradiagoodin.com and subscribe to the show on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. You can also follow me on social media at Dr. Adia Gooden. If you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes so we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Lastly, if you found this episode helpful and know someone who might benefit from hearing it, please share it. Thanks for listening and see you next episode. This episode was produced by Chris and Tiana and the music is by Wadaboy.